I, uh, I saw a video a while ago, and uh, it's of this old man who goes to this uh, muscle beach. It's this famous beach in California where uh, people lift weights, uh, weight, where weightlifters train. Arnold Schwarzenegger is one such person and others. And so this 86-year-old man shows up there, and uh, he walks around, and he prepares to start lifting some weights, and he's talking to guys that are there, all young, you know, guys built like oxes and uh, oxen. And, um, and, and so he's, he's getting ready, and people are kind of laughing and snickering, and, he, and then they start cautioning, cautioning him uh, to, you know, make sure he doesn't hurt himself, especially as he takes this big bar and starts loading it up with a lot of weight. And uh, so they're kind of looking at him funny, like he's not serious, is he? And then, um, and then he bends over, and he just throws this thing up over his head, almost like it's nothing. And so everybody, and there's a crowd around the fence, and everybody starts clapping and cheering, and everyone thinks it's great. And, uh, and then he just, he continues on doing all kinds of different exercises and challenges that uh, probably none of us could do, and, uh, and impressing people, and then he challenges a couple of these young guys to, to uh, a contest, and he, and he smokes them, and so even these guys that are very large, uh, they're sort of uh, wowed by this, this old man, uh, but little did everyone know, things were not quite what they seemed, and uh, this, this supposed old man was really a young man, a young athlete, who was uh, dressed up in Hollywood-style makeup and costume to make himself look old. And so, uh, you know, as, as you watch this video, maybe some of you have seen it, but as you watch the video, it's funny because you know watching the video what's going on, but these people that are caught on camera have no idea, so it's just funny to watch their reaction to this. Um, they have no clue that things are not what they seem. This man, he had the appearance of feebleness, he had the appearance of weakness, and yet he was, in fact, an incredibly strong young man. As we come to Luke 9, verse 28 and following, we've reached what is commonly called the transfiguration. And uh, we see in this text that there's a lot more to this person, Jesus, than initially meets the eye. So he had a normal human appearance. Uh, so, so we see this, people, as Jesus is talking and they, you know, trying to explain who he is, and, and, and some people just say, man, we, we know your parents. Like, like there's nothing, why, you're just, we know who you are, we know where you come from. He just looked like an ordinary person. He grew up as a child. Uh, he was, a, just, just to many, appeared a, a normal man. Isaiah even indicates that likely there was, there was, uh, he wasn't even that attractive looking. There's nothing about his physical appearance that would wow people. He's just your very average-looking uh, man. And yet, we see here in this text that he, there's much more to him than that. There was a glory that was masked in his humanity. Uh, that is, that it was not immediately evident if you were to just look at him as he was walking the earth. But in this text, the curtain is just pulled back here just for a moment... And his glory, quite literally, shines through, and we can see it. Uh, the reformer John Calvin says that this account was and is designed for the disciples' future use, so that they would not take offense at the weakness of Christ, as if it were by force that he had suffered. 
So as it, you know, that, that later on they would be able to look back on this and they would realize it wasn't as if when he died on the cross he had zero control over this and he just was, you know, wherever they sent him, he had no choice but to go. And so I think rightly he's saying that this event would help the disciples later to not completely stumble over Jesus' weakness because of his death, what they see, could see as weakness and be discouraged because they would have this memory of this moment in which his glory was miraculously displayed, in addition, of course, to everything else that he did. So, I mean, in many ways, much of what Jesus does and says uh, is pointing to the fact that there's much more to him than just, you know, mere humanity. Um, but we see it again here in brilliant, uh, visibly and audibly, we see it in, in brilliant fashion that he is, in fact, glorious. And so it's another piece to this puzzle that makes up this picture of who is Jesus. Again, this question that keeps coming up throughout this section in the book of Luke, this is a really important part of this. And so just as the disciples, they might have been tempted, especially later on, to be embarrassed about the apparent weakness of Christ, this one they followed and claimed was Messiah, was crucified, uh, we might as well be tempted towards embarrassment of him, you know, who wants to worship a crucified Messiah as we start to say those words to somebody else that might sound odd coming out of our mouths and we might perhaps be tempted towards an embarrassment. He might be seen as unimpressive to many, uh, but we must understand him as fully as we can, as our minds will allow, as God will enable us to understand his true glory. So let's read this, uh, starting in verse 28 of Luke chapter 9. <clears throat> It says, now about eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter, that's Jesus, took with him Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. And as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. And as he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the clouds saying, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. And they kept silent and told no one in those days anything of what they had seen. You've perhaps heard uh, Christians or even myself or others use the phrase, The person and the work of Christ. His person refers to who he is as a person. Who is Jesus? And his work refers to his earthly mission. What it is he did as he was walked upon this earth. Uh, at the center of which stands his work of atonement. And so this text uh, reveals to us the gloriousness of Christ in both his person and his work. And so that's what we want to set our eyes on uh, for the rest of our time. That's what we're going to look at. And so firstly, looking at how Jesus is glorious in his person. 
So Luke begins this part by telling us that it's about eight days after these sayings, he says. These sayings being the passage we looked at last week, where Peter confesses that Jesus is the Christ, and then Jesus goes on to uh, tell in advance, to foretell about his coming death and resurrection, and then he goes on to give instructions about discipleship after that, in verses 23 to 27. And so uh, about eight days later, Luke says, uh, he took Peter, took John and James, and he goes up on this mountainside to pray. Uh, Why did he take these three? It's not really told to us explicitly. We do find there's a few times where he takes just these three aside. They sometimes refer to these three as his inner circle of disciples. And, uh, but it's never really explained why he chose these three. We just trust he had his reasons and for his own good pleasure chose these three. Uh, possibly, uh, in terms of why he only has three of them come up with him to see this, uh, again, we're not exactly told. But possibly part of it is he wants three people to establish the credibility of what occurred. Um, Deuteronomy 17.6, when Jewish law, their understanding, you would need two or three witnesses to establish a claim, to establish something as being true. And here we have uh, three of these men up on this mountain with him. So they go up there to pray. While they're there, the disciples were very sleepy, we see in verse 32. And uh, the way Luke writes it, it's, uh, he's the only one that talks about them being sleepy. Matthew and Mark both tell this account of the transfiguration. They don't really mention this part. Um, so the way Luke writes it, they almost, it seems they almost miss it. Uh, they kind of come to just in time to see uh, the glory of, of Christ. Uh, but they're sleepy. Uh, but Luke, Luke says that uh, as Jesus was praying, in verse 29, as Jesus was praying... The appearance of his face was altered, and his clothes became dazzling white. So this describes uh, a heavenly glory. Uh, In verse 32, Luke explicitly calls this his glory. Uh, The disciples, they come to, and they see his glory. This is a heavenly glory. Um, it's, It's similar to what we see when angels show up, and they're in bright white, and there's this glory about them. Uh, it's similar to that. It's a little different, as we'll see. Jesus' glory is not from anyone else. It's, it's in and of himself, and it's a far greater glory. Um, in Matthew, in Matthew's account, we see that it's not just his, his clothes that are shining, that are bright white, um, but it's also his face. It's also his face. So uh, Matthew and Mark both use this word uh, that in our English versions is translated transfiguration. Um, and, and they speak of his face that was shining. His face changes, and even it, it, it's, it's shining in glory. Uh, Luke doesn't use that word. He uses a slightly more subdued word, I would say, altered. But again, there's, they're pointing to the same thing. His, his face changed, and what that means, what that meant, was it was shining brightly, really quite brightly, along with his clothes. And so what's happening here is that the true glory of Jesus is shining through here in this moment. There is much more to him than it appeared. There's an inherent glory within himself that shines out here on the mountain with these disciples and with Elijah and Moses there. Uh, in Exodus 34, 29, Moses, we're told, came down from Mount Sinai and his face was shining. Though he didn't know it. He wasn't aware of it, but when he came down, his face was bright, it was shining, others could see it. 
Um, now we have Jesus. He's up on a mountain and he is shining. So I think there are some parallels between these two different accounts, but there's some really important differences. Whereas we're told in uh, Exodus 34:29 that Moses' face shined because he had been talking with God, Jesus' face and his clothes shine because of who he is. It's not the result of him talking with God and God's the glory of God makes his face bright. Uh, it's just, it's, it's an inherent glory that is now shining forth in his face and in his clothing. He is the eternal Son of God. He's of the same substance as the Father. In John 17, 5, uh, there Jesus, as he's praying to his Father, he prays there about returning to the glory that he had before the world existed. Jesus had uh, a glory being the eternal Son of God, which we've sung about, uh, before anything else was ever created. And here, in just a small way, in this glimpse, it shines forth. He is glorious in his person. Uh, notice in verse 30 and 31, who join him uh, in this account. Moses and Elijah, they're there. Well, why these two? Well, Moses represents the law, and Elijah represents the prophets. So what this is showing then, by having Moses and having Elijah present, is that the law and the prophets, they all pointed ahead to this person, the person of Jesus. Moses mediated the Old Covenant. He wrote the first five books of the Bible, often referred to as the law. Uh, so it's easy, therefore, to see how Moses represents uh, the law. While Elijah was not a writing prophet, we don't have uh, a book written by Elijah. Nevertheless, few compare with the, this man and with his ministry uh, in multiple ways, both in his power and even in some of his ministerial success. So, I mean, he, he raised a, de a widow's dead son from the dead. Uh, he, he um, by his word, I mean, this was God working through him. There was famine in the land by his prayer. The famine broke later on. Uh, think of him with the prophets of Baal, rebuking them. And then even his ministerial success, at the end of that story, these, those prophets were cleansed from the land. And yeah, he does end up on the run, and he's persecuted by Jezebel. Uh, but nevertheless, uh, he did bring about a, a great cleansing in Israel that day. And so, while Moses himself was a prophet, in many ways, Elijah was the head of the prophets. And seen in many ways as the greatest of the prophets. The entirety of the Old Testament, the law and the prophets, were pointing ahead to the son of David that would come and rescue the Lord's people and bless all the nations of the earth in this way. And so the presence of Moses and of Elijah here confirms that this is that individual. They're affirming this is the one. That's, that's what this is, is displaying for us. Um, just the other night, just last night, Christina and I were talking about this, and uh, I remember I was older than I wish when, when, when I realized that the Old Testament is not just a collection of random stories. Uh, so the first time I just read it through from Genesis to Malachi, I remember just my mind being blown away that some of these stories I learned as a kid were actually connected into one greater storyline. 
uh, that this was actually telling a story. There was a beginning, there was plot, and it was all moving somewhere. It was all pointing to something. And that something, or that someone, ultimately, is Christ. It's Jesus. And that's what the, their presence here, Moses and Elijah, are confirming, are indicating. That he is the centerpiece of Scripture. And by extension, he's the centerpiece of world history. Everything was driving toward his arrival in the Old Testament. And now, he's here. As John the Baptist's father, Zechariah, said in Luke 173, this baby that was coming, Jesus, was coming in fulfillment of God's oath that he swore to Abraham. That promise he made to Abraham that one of his offspring would come, and through him the nations of the world would be blessed. That Genesis 12, 3, that's, that's coming true now, Zechariah is saying. All of that, all the Old Testament, all the prophets, pointing that to this individual, this, this Messiah is going to come, and now here he is, being confirmed by the presence of Moses and of Elijah. So he is glorious in his person. There's more that reveals his glory. If you look down at verse 34 and 35, it says, As he was saying these things, that is Peter, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. So a cloud overwhelms this mountain, and the disciples were afraid. Again, this is reminiscent of Mount Sinai. God the Father is present here in this cloud, and he thunders down, This is my son, my chosen one. This is similar to what was declared by the Father at Jesus' baptism. Uh, in 2 Peter 1, which was read uh, earlier in the service, Peter would recall this moment on the mountain when he heard this, this voice declare this. So here God the Father again declares that Jesus is his son. Now, it's true, and some people are quick to point out, it's true that other, other people in the Bible, other people in the scriptures are called uh, sons of God. Indeed, the nation of Israel is sometimes referred to as God's son. David is declared God's son. But even so, it's really clear, in, even just in Luke, um, never mind the, the rest of the New Testament, but even just in Luke, it's, it's clear that Jesus' sonship to the Father is a unique one. Right? If you recall, he was born of a virgin. Okay? This is not a normal child. This son of God is unique. He was not a normal man being adopted as a son by God in the way that, say, David was. Even we, as children of God, as sons and daughters of God, we're that by faith. Uh, we're that by being united to Christ by faith. Uh, this is not the case for Jesus. He was not made a son. He is the son, and he always has been the son from eternity past. He is God the Son, who became incarnate, that is, he took to himself a human nature in addition to his divine nature. And these natures are, are separate and they're distinct, though they both exist in one person of God the Son. And while this is certainly, we confess, uh, a mystery, you know, there's limits to our understanding of this, how exactly this can work, that one person can have two natures that are distinct, and how exactly this works uh, is, we confess, mysterious. Nevertheless, this is the overwhelming testimony of the New Testament, of Scripture. 
He is the Son of God. He is truly God. He is truly man. And he is the chosen one. He is the Messiah appointed to be the only Savior of men and women. So this Jesus, he, he seems, he might seem ordinary in places, even in Scripture. Uh, his, clearly, his humanity is, uh, we do not deny that, he is truly man. His humanity is on display even in this very passage. The mere fact that Jesus would pray, right, that shows a neediness there. That's, that's true of him in his human nature, in his humanity. He said last week, as we saw, it was necessary for him to die. That's God cannot die. Jesus would experience this in and through his human nature. And so his humanity is clearly on display throughout the scriptures. And yet we dare not and we must not underestimate him or not see this other side of him. We cannot, we must not carry about a low view of the person of Jesus as if he's merely or simply a nice guy, or even a weak person. Many contemporary understandings of Jesus do, simply do not do justice to, the, to his glory, to his greatness, the glory of his person. He is eternally the Son of God, equal with the Father, and he's worthy of praise, he's worthy of our worship. This glory is inherent in who he is as the Son of God. And so may he be magnified in your heart. May your praises uh, be lifted high in worship of him. May you be uh, thunder it loudly and be not ashamed in any way. May any embarrassment be gone. Uh, friends, if you're trusting him for your salvation, see here, see here a glimpse of his glory. This is just a, a sliver in a moment of just how glorious he is. A glory which will be on full display for eternity when he comes. And so may familiarity with uh, the Lord Jesus and with the scriptures not stop us from seeing this greatness, from seeing this glory. And so uh, there's lots of ways that this is helpful to us. I think uh, for one, just for us to, to lift our, our heads from discouragement. I mean, if we could see this, if we could grasp this, that the one we trust in, the one that we've uh, committed our eternity to, that we're trusting for the forgiveness of our sins, is the eternal Son of God, who is glorious in His person, in Himself. Uh, this would be much cause for celebration, much cause for joy. Uh, it would help us to, um, to not worry. I mean, so much of our worry would be gone, our anxiety would be gone. This Savior is yours by faith if you're trusting in Him, and He is for you, and he is great. Jesus is glorious in his person. Secondly, he is glorious in his work. Just simply being great in his person is not necessarily in and of itself good news if he also hasn't done a great work on our behalf. So, Jesus is not only the glorious person that the law and the prophets point to, but he also accomplishes the glorious work that the law and the prophets point to. So did you notice as we read this, the topic of conversation between Jesus, Moses, and Elijah? I'll look again at verse 31. And they spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. 
That word departure is the word exodus, which some of your Bibles uh, point out in a footnote there. And they're probably pointing that out because it's possible that this word is designed by Luke to draw our attention to the exodus from Egypt, which is the major uh, act, the paradigm act of redemption in the Old Testament. In fact, uh, later prophets, much later after the Exodus, later prophets would speak of this coming redemption that this Messiah is going to bring. They would speak of it as a new Exodus. And they would use Exodus language to speak about this redemption that's greater than the old Exodus that's yet to come. And now here's Jesus speaking with Moses and Elijah about his Exodus. Now, there's some debate about what exactly this is referring to. As he talks about his departure, his exodus that's coming, what's he talking about? We know he says there that it's going to happen at Jerusalem, which means either it's his death, or it's his death and resurrection, or it's his death, resurrection, and his ascension. I'm inclined to agree with those who argue it's referring to the latter, all three of these events, his death, resurrection, and ascension. That just seems to make... Uh, most most sense. As we've uh, mentioned, as we're making our way through Luke chapter 9, the focus is starting to shift in Luke's gospel towards Jerusalem. He said last week, for the first time, he mentioned earlier in chapter 9 uh, that he was going to, uh, it was necessary, he must go and be mistreated and die and rise again from the dead. Now, Jerusalem's mentioned, he's looking ahead to his uh, this, this event that's going to take place uh, in Jerusalem, his departure. In chapter 9, verse 51, Jesus is going to set his face toward Jerusalem, and that's going to be a repeated theme a number of places throughout uh, Luke. And so everything's starting to, to shift and drive, and his focus is on what's going to happen at Jerusalem. And of course, what happens there is that Jesus would die, he would rise again from the dead, and then he would ascend to the Father's right hand. So I think we shouldn't move too quickly past the topic of conversation between Jesus and Elijah and Moses. Uh, God did not bring this about. He did not go through all this uh, effort, all this work. Um, not, I'm not saying this was hard for God, like as anything's difficult. But he would not bring this about, this experience, this thing on the mountain that's happening. He wouldn't bring this about in order to just have these three shoot the breeze, uh, in order to have these three talk about, you know, even just secondary matters. This is a short occasion. And they came to discuss the work that the law and the prophets point to as being absolutely necessary, as being essential. They discussed the key element of Jesus' earthly ministry. We saw last week, we, we talked about this a little more, um, just how the Bible in the Old Testament and in the New, um, but how the Old Testament declared in numerous ways that it was necessary for Jesus to die and rise again. That everything's pointing to this, from the sacrificial system, from the, 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 the tabernacle and the temple, the Ark of the Covenant, uh, the, the constant reminder of sins, uh, the law points to, etc. Um, the, the explicit uh, prophecies about Christ, all of these things driving home the necessity that, that this person, this, this one, this Jesus, needs to come and die for our sins. 
and to suffer for our sins. We need a sacrifice of atonement that will actually remove sins and satisfy God's wrath for our sins. This is what the Old Testament's driving towards, and, and, and if we're not seeing that, then we're reading it wrong. We would, we're reading it incorrectly if we don't come away with that. And Moses and Elijah, here in this moment, reveal that to be the case. They're in agreement with this. And they're discussing this major event that's going to take place in Jerusalem. They're in agreement. Again, some are uh, embarrassed about the cross of Christ for numerous reasons. Um, some because it involves uh, bloody sacrifice, involves sins, talking about sins, involves judgment for sins, involves God's wrath, etc., uh, many want to downplay the cross as maybe just perhaps one element of Jesus' entire life and ministry. But the whole of Scripture declares that it is the central place. If not, why is he having this discussion about this topic with Moses and Elijah? Also, uh, to see the, the centrality of this uh, in the Gospels... Um, we can also look at, at, at how much time they commit to this, how much space they give to this. So uh, some people think that um, Matthew, Mark, and Luke don't have much theology in them, and, uh, and so they tr will try to divorce you know, Paul and, and the others who come later, who, who are much more theological in their explanation, even the Gospel of John. Well, that's all later, and they're all corrupting you know, the early Jesus, and Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they don't have such a high view of Jesus, etc., but that's, that's not true in multiple ways, but, but when you're writing a, a, a narrative of Jesus' life, um, there's different ways of communicating your theology and communicating what is important without actually explicitly just saying this is really important for this reason. Uh, there's different ways of communicating that. One of them is in how much time they devote to different, to different matters. So let, let me just explain this. So uh, in, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they move really quickly. The narrative kind of cruises through three and a half years of Jesus' earthly ministry, from his baptism right up until uh, the final week when he enters Jerusalem. They just move really rapidly through that. And then, and then everything slows down and grinds to a crawl uh, for that final week of Jesus' life that includes his death and his resurrection. And then they tag on his ascension at the end also. And so, for example, in Matthew... Uh, Eight of his 28 chapters is devoted to that last week of Jesus' life. That, that communicates this is important, really important, central even. Uh, Mark, it's similar. Five of his 16 chapters is devoted to that. Luke, it's also five of his 24 chapters devoted to that. So they move through the rest very quickly. Not to say it's not important, but you can tell that this is the thing they want to get to, that this is what they're, you know, the, the most significant aspect of Jesus' life and of his earthly ministry. This aspect of Christ's work, it's the only hope that any person has of, of being forgiven, of being made right. That, that he came, that, he, that it was necessary for Jesus to come and to take upon himself his people's sin, to die in their place, to rise again from the dead in victory over that sin, and to ascend to the Father's right hand and then now intercede for his people there. 
So this, this departure they're discussing, this exodus, is the central event of Scripture. And so we preach the glorious Christ who performed a glorious work of salvation. And of course, he's going to return one day. I don't want to minimize that or downplay that because that's certainly where the scriptures end in the book of Revelation is this glorious return of Christ. Uh, he's departed now uh, and he's back to the Father's right hand, but from there he will come. Uh, he is returning to judge his enemies and to dwell forever with those that he has saved granting his children resurrected bodies to dwell with him forever. So his work is a glorious work. It's common to speak of um, the three offices of, of Jesus, the three offices of Christ. You've probably heard this. Uh, the three offices that he fulfills as our Redeemer, that Jesus is prophet, he is priest, and he is king. And the work that I've just been describing uh, belongs especially to his role as our high priest, that he came to offer himself as a sacrifice. He's ascended to the Father's right hand now, uh, where he intercedes for us. This is part of his, his work as our high priest. But his work does also include the fact that he is the great prophet who has come to reveal God to us in a unique way and to reveal to us in a unique way uh, and, and complete way the way of salvation. Uh, so in verse 35, the Father, he not only declares that Jesus is his Son, and that he's the Chosen One, but then he adds a command, and he says there in verse 35, listen to him. Listen to him. So if everything I've been saying about the person of Jesus, who he is, is true, and if everything I've been saying about his, his cross work is true, then it follows, then, that we should listen to him. He is the teacher of his people. Hebrews 1, 1-4, Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But, in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son. Notice this is a, a greater thing than even the prophets of old, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. So there's a finality and an ultimacy to the prophetic work of Christ. What the prophets of old saw in shadowy figures, Jesus has come to reveal, reveal with a piercing clarity. It's one thing to say, there will be one who comes in the line of David, and it's another thing for that person to say, I am him, I am that one, and here's how this works. And so our New Testament scriptures are about explaining him. They're about pointing to him, explaining who he is, explaining his work. As the author of Hebrews writes these words, he's not uh, making this up out of nowhere. This isn't divorced from the Gospels like the Gospel of Luke. Rather, it's consistent with the rest of Scripture, and it logically follows from what happens here in Luke, even in Luke chapter 9. This is a, a logical 
inference from Luke chapter 9. He's glorious. He's great. The father testified to this and then says, listen to him. I saw uh, the other day someone's catechism uh, for their for small children, and I uh, read one of the questions, and it, and it asked uh, why it is that we need Jesus as our prophet, and the answer was uh, because we are ignorant. And uh, I found the bluntness of it humorous, uh, but it's absolutely true, though. It's true. It's funny, and then you think, well, that's, that's about it. That sums it up. Apart from God revealing himself to mankind, we would never find him. We would never find him on our own. We would never have put things together. And so hence the necessity and also the beauty of the scriptures. God's revelation of himself to mankind. And even in this passage, we see the ignorance of man, uh, don't we? Uh, look again at verse 32 and 33. We see that Peter and John and James... We're all heavy with sleep when this began. Uh, but then upon snapping out of it more fully, we, uh, they, they saw what was going on. They saw the glory of Jesus. Uh, we're not told how they recognized Elijah and, Elijah and Moses. They don't, it's not explained how they knew it was them. Uh, we're just told that they knew it was him. Uh, and so seeing this uh, and stumbling, Peter says that uh, he acknowledges it's a good thing for us to be there. And then he uh, offers to put up three tents, Luke says, not knowing what he said. Uh, in Mark uh, 9, 6, uh, it says, for, speaking of Peter, for he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. Uh, so it, it seems this is what Luke means by this. He says he didn't know what he was saying. He's just, he just, he, he sees this, he knows this is a big deal. Um, and uh, some of us do this rather than just keeping our mouths shut when we're awkward and we don't know what to do. We say something, and sometimes it's, it's a little bit foolish. Uh, so Peter blurts out this statement, uh, failing to grasp really what was going on. And so, I, I mean, I don't, I kind of feel for him. I don't necessarily think less of him for this uh, because I think it just shows what's true of all of us, uh, that we don't get it, and we need help. We need help understanding we need God explained. And so Jesus came to do that. We need the scriptures explained. And so God has given them to us. And he's given the apostles to explain the life and ministry of Jesus to us. And in them we find everything's pointing to Jesus. We find that he is the exact imprint of God's nature He's the one who, as John 1.18 says, is the only God who is at the Father's side. He, Jesus, has made him known. So, this is really what it all comes down to for us and for everybody, really, then, is whether we will listen to Jesus or not. Whether we will confess our ignorance and our need to be shown what is true, our need to, to find salvation outside of ourselves, to see that Jesus is the Christ, that he is glorious, and that he did come to earth in order to save a people for himself. To see that we cannot grasp these things, we can't know God on our own apart from scripture. Whether we will believe all of that, submit to it, submit to Christ, listen to the Father by listening to his son Jesus, 
or not, or whether we will persist in our own understanding, cling to our own ways, our own understanding of things. In verse 36, we see that the disciples kept quiet in those days, telling nobody. Uh, obviously, they eventually spoke up. That's the only way we would know this ever occurred. Um, but both Matthew and Mark, um, they, they explain that it was Jesus who actually told them not to tell anyone until after his resurrection. Uh, so it seems then, as I mentioned earlier, uh, it seems that Calvin's claim has weight that this was designed to give comfort later on for his disciples, and by extension, us. As the disciples themselves would see Jesus be crucified, as they would contemplate the crucifixion, they would remember this account. They would remember that Jesus was not weak, that he was glorious in his person, that he was glorious in his work. This event on this mountainside on an otherwise, as far as we know, ordinary day revealed the majesty of Christ, just a glimpse of the true majesty of the Lord Jesus. So the cross then was not an oops, it was not a plan B, it was not a sign of a failed mission, as some might claim. It's not evidence of any failing or any lack of power on the part of Jesus. It was the glorious work of the glorious person, Jesus Christ, to which the entirety of the scriptures point as being necessary. And so as with these disciples, we look back on this, which has been passed down to us in the scriptures. We look back on this in faith, seeing the cross as our only hope and as a great hope because the one who undertook it was no less than the glorious Son of God who took on flesh and fulfilled the one great plan of redemption. And so there's much comfort to be taken here, much joy to be found in this, and much reason to take this news to others as well, that others might find rest in their only hope, Christ, that others might see Jesus for who he is and worship him for who he is. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for this, this your word. Thank you, Father, for sending your Son, Jesus. Thank you for giving us your scriptures. Thank you for revealing yourselves to us, those who would otherwise be left in ignorance. And Father, we just pray that others would, would, would hear this and that others would bow their knee to the Lord Jesus. I, I pray that a true knowledge of him would spread throughout this city and throughout this province. Father, I pray that even as we, in much weakness, try to share this with others, in our various workplaces, as we meet other people, as we go knock on doors. I just pray, Lord, that you take our weak and what feel like feeble efforts and do great things with it that you might be magnified, that your own name would be glorified. Father, would you do a great work in our children. May they see the greatness of Christ. And may they bow the knee and may they worship him as well. Father, we thank you for 
just being gracious to us and for being kind to us in this. And we just uh, pray that you would encourage your people. May we be not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, knowing it is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes. And so, Father, we give you praise and thanks, and we pray that you'd bless the rest of our time together today in fellowship, and we ask all this in the name of Jesus. Amen.